Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Kristen Neff to the show. Dr. Neff holds a doctorate in educational psychology and is a pioneer in the study of self-compassion. In fact, she created scales to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. Dr. Neff has been recognized as one of the world's most influential research psychologists. She is a co-founder of the Nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, and her book, Fierce Self-Compassion, as well as hear her advice to those interested in the field of psychology. Dr. Neff, welcome to our podcast. Hi. Hi, Bradley. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. I'm actually very excited to talk about your journey. I know a little bit about it, but I'm excited to learn a little bit more. First, though, let's start off. Tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate studies and what made you gravitate towards psychology. So um, I went to uh, UCLA as an undergraduate, and I was actually a communications major. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, which is why it was kind of a very general major. And then my last year, my senior year, I took a, um, actually, I guess it was starting in junior, a three-semester series uh, on cultural anthropology. And I became really fascinated by the issue of um, cultural relativism versus universalism. And are, is there anything about the human experience that we can say is shared about culture or is it all relative to culture? Um, and I just fell in love with this whole idea and this concept. And, and um, I realized as I ended my undergraduate degree that uh, I wanted to head into, maybe this is your next question, but to continue <laughs> in that field of study. So that's why, but so, so basically I started in, as a general major, which, which, which allowed me to take a lot of courses in different areas. And I fell in love with psychological anthropology. Well, that's a good summary, and I should let everybody know you received your BA in communications, University of yeah. California, Los Angeles, and then you stayed in California, and you yes. actually attended UC Berkeley and yes. uh, focused on educational psychology and human development, actually, for your master's and your doctorate. Um, yes. How and why did you decide on UC Berkeley? There are many different schools in California that you could have chosen. So why did you, um, you know, choose Berkeley, UC Berkeley? Yeah, so it's because I wanted to study with a particular advisor, which is I always tell people, especially at the doctoral level, if you want to, um, if, if you want to choose a school, you really should choose your advisor, because especially in a doctoral program, that's where you're going to be spending most of your time, and that's whose research is going to most influence your career. And there's a, um, an amazing man who's still actually teaching named Elliot Turiel. And he was one of the world's foremost researchers in moral development. And in particular, <clears throat> he was studying issues of relativism and universalism. There was a big debate in the time and, and, and the field of moral development, is morality completely relative? Or are there some universal princ principles like justice or not causing harm? 
And he had a really sophisticated model called domain theory, which he could, which, in which he could say, well, in some areas it's universal, in some areas it's cultural, and in some areas it's personal. And I was just really drawn to um, the model. And so I applied. I think that was actually the only program I applied to because I wasn't absolutely sure I wanted to get my graduate degree, but I thought, well, if I could work with him and you know, stay in California, then maybe it would work out. Um, and if he could offer me a, a position, a, a research assistantship so I could fund my graduate studies. Uh, and he did, he accepted me as a student. And he, he just happened to be in the human development program in the educational psychology department. A lot of human development programs are actually housed in regular psychology. So human development is actually a sub area, which you sometimes find in educational psychology, sometimes in just general psychology departments. So that's really why I ended up in that in that area, because I wanted to study with him in particular. Well, you already mentioned something. Uh, I know that you were a TA or a teaching assistant for a little while at the very beginning there. Uh, right. And then you were a research assistant uh, right. at uh, UC Berkeley for about six or seven years, and then became lecturer after you received your uh, uh, doctorate. And so we'll get to that. And so uh, one other question, follow-up question, were you considering other uh, schools or you narrowed it down right away and you found yeah, that advisor? Pretty much. I just, I just wanted to work with him. I, I suppose it was, hmm. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't think I applied with anyone else. I don't recall applying for everyone else. It was a long time ago. So I suppose 30 years ago, right? So theoretically, <laughs> perhaps I did apply with someone else that I don't remember, but certainly he's the only one I remember applying to UC Berkeley. Did so. you did you apply directly to the master's program or directly to the doctoral program? Right. So um to the doctoral program. Okay. So different schools do it differently. Um mm -hmm. so many schools like where I am now at UT Austin or UC Berkeley, you apply for the doctoral program and you get your master's along the way. Mm -hmm. So it's really about how they admit graduate students because if you admit if you admit someone who just wants to get their master's, you probably aren't going to have such a close one-on-one -on -one working relationship with an advisor. But in this case, I applied really specifically to work with Elliot Turiel in the doctoral program, and then the master's is just kind of almost get it as a matter of course. And so. the reason that I was asking that, Dr. Neff, was some students think, "Oh, I'm not quite sure if I'm interested in this." Um, and the downside, and that's great, you can, you know, tip your toe in the water, so to speak, and, and go that route and then go on for that uh, doctoral degree. The advantage of applying directly to the doctoral degree, though, is it shows that you are more committed, and you tend to uh, receive more funding. And so let's talk about that for a second. And so if you yeah. just go for your master's, typically, you won't find as much funding in just a master's terminal degree as you would in a doctoral degree. So did right. they offer you any funding when you applied for the doctoral program? Yeah. And so that's how, again, in most many universities, I don't know about all, it works where, so he had a large grant, mm -hmm. right? So when I applied to work with him, the idea was that, and, and again, if he was to invest in me in terms of giving some of his grant money to fund me, I think I did maybe start as a teaching assistant, but then I moved to a research assistant. He wants to make sure I'm committed to going mm -hmm. all the way through so I could help him on his project, mm -hmm. um, which is, how it works. So I actually arrived at UC Berkeley with funding in place. So basically, usually um, 
that type of position, teaching a research assistant, it covers your uh, tuition and it covers your healthcare. And there's a small stipend that typically, if you live like a graduate student, that <laughs> covers your um, housing. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that's the way it worked. Well, good, good. Um, what were some of your fondest memories? I mean, you spent uh, uh, some time there and you learned quite a bit. And uh, based on your vita and based on your uh, experience, you had a wide variety of experiences. So what were some of the fondest memories attending graduate school? Right. So um, <laughs> one of the greatest things was uh, just a sense of community there. So Elliot, he had, he had something called a domain theory. And we called ourselves the domain gang. There was a whole series of ex-students and current students who were kind of friends. We had this little circle of people who um, were doing research in that model. So that was nice going to conferences, um, the other graduate students. Um, Elliot himself was just such a pleasure to work with. It's just really amazing. So much is the personality of your advisor, I have to say. And he was just such a good man and fun. And we all had fun. But probably um, maybe the biggest memorable experience is, so there was kind of one of these academic wars that go on between Elliot Turiel and a man named Richard Schwader, who was, you know, they they always have these academic epic battles. So Elliot Turiel argued that some aspects of morality were universal. Richard Schwader argued that, you know, it's all completely culturally relative. Um, and Richard Schrader actually did most of his research in India, showing, trying to show that in India, the morality is totally different than you would find in a place like the United States. And um, I disagreed. <laughs> I thought that some aspects of um, morality in India, like whether or not you could actually harm someone or whether or not you could totally ignore someone's human rights, would not be considered to be moral. So I, I did my dissertation research in India. I spent a year in Mysore, India. And there was also actually, luckily, a way to get funding for that. There was an exchange situation between Mysore, India and um, UC Berkeley that allowed me to do that again, paid for, which was amazing. Um, and so that was just remarkable to spend a year abroad um, collecting my research data. And then I, then I came back to write it up. Well, I'm glad to hear that you did. Uh, you participated and took advantage of that uh, research exchange program. When I went to school, I did the same thing, and I went over to Scotland and England and studied, and then was able to travel. But it's it's interesting because we take for granted, unless you travel, we take for granted some of our cultural norms and expectations. Yes. And then, to your point, when you go someplace else, they may be different. And I also did that as an undergraduate. There was an exchange program with uh, in Paris. So I spent a year in Paris. And a lot of times these are fully funded. So I, I really recommend to students if they want that experience, because you aren't just a traveler. You aren't going on vacation. You're right. usually staying with the host family, or if not, you're, you're embedded with an institution. So you really get to know the culture more deeply. You actually have a purpose while there, and you spend a longer period of time, which allows you to you know, learn the language. I learned French. I didn't learn um, Hindi. I must admit <laughs> when I was in India, that was a bit challenging for me, but yeah. Well, the other question that a lot of our guests ask is, well, how did your guests decide on which branch or area of psychology they <laughs> wanted to start to study? And I've heard multiple answers and I'll ask you in a second, but one answer is I picked it out. I knew right away, or it kind of 
my path led me to that area. And so in your case, did you kind of know ahead of time that, hey, educational psychology, human development was my area, or did it kind of evolve after you took so many classes? Yeah. So again, I was, for me, um, I was more interested in the issue of, and that, at that time, moral development, but I knew I was also interested in, in development, right? How people develop the way they think about the world. Mm-hmm. And so it just so happened that Elliot Turiel was in a, by the way, Elliot Turiel was Lawrence Kohlberg's student. So that's like kind of the connection. I saw his name flash up there. Yep. And then, so moral development is either taught, you can find it in a classic developmental psychology program, which is usually housed within general psychology, but sometimes there'll be a human development separate area um, or developmental psychology separate area or human development. So it's one of those areas that just it's not really housed in a particular place. Um, But I did like educational psychology because it also focused on learning. And again, I was really interested in um, versus I wasn't interested so much in social psychology and like implicit biases or all those things. I was really interested in how people become who they are, how they how they learn their values, their morals, or their understanding of the world. And then so I knew developmental was a good area for me. And human development in particular, it seemed to fit because again, it was more broad. But but you know, ask the difference between a human development program and a developmental psychology program. And often it's just kind of happenstance of how the programs came to be at a particular university. So with that in mind, everybody finds their, their area, their own way, any advice that you'd have to people or students who are interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology? Yeah, well, so much depends on what you want to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you want to go into counseling, that's going to be much different than if you envision yourself as a researcher, which is different than if you envision yourself going into teaching, Right. So um, I think the most important thing is what what do you imagine doing with the degree after you spend all that time and potentially money to get that degree? Um, and then really so important who you work with, especially if you go for a doctoral program. You know, I really believe in this model of choose your mentor first. The other is kind of you, you might be in a, a great program, but if you have no mentor, you'll you'll flounder. Or if you have a great mentor and the program's not so great, it's actually probably not going to hinder you very much. Especially if you're going to go into research, you're known by who your mentor was. Typically, your dissertation will be using their theory, and it's kind of what launches you into the field. So, um, well, one of the one of the follow up questions is: many of our guests ask, "Well, what's the difference between a PsyD and a PhD?" And you know, some of my guests were. <laughs> going through school when the PsyD wasn't even available yeah. and, and others uh, were. And the general consensus, and I'll get your opinion in a second, is if you're going to stay within the academic field and focus more on research, then the PhD is probably a better route. But I'm finding more and more of my guests are staying in the academic field and they have a PsyD and more and more research institutions, depending on if you're research one, two or three, um, almost expect you to do more outside of the academic world as well. So you're, you're doing both. So what are your thoughts on whether I should get a PhD or a PsyD? 
Well, if you just want to be a counselor and you aren't interested in research, don't bother getting a PhD. It's not necessarily going to help you. You have to do a dissertation with this idea you don't. And it's a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt you to have that PhD, but it doesn't necessarily help you. And it is a lot of extra effort. If you want to go to a research one university where I am now, a PsyD won't cut it. So um, if, you're, if you mainly want to teach and you aren't so interested in, in being a researcher, then a PsyD may be okay. But you can't, you can't counsel, you can't advise people on how to do a dissertation if you haven't done a dissertation yourself. Mm -hmm. So really, if you want to stay in academia and you get a PsyD, you won't be doing research or you won't be mentoring students in research, typically. But if you just want to teach, let's say in a master's program, it may be completely fine. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right, especially um, in some counseling programs, you might teach and you may have, a, say, some practice on the side and, and integrate both. Um, but I actually, I, it's funny, I'm a researcher and I love, I, I actually, well, I'll get to that. I recently took early retirement. So now I'm mainly doing my applied work, although I'm still doing research. I, I have modified status at the university, which basically means I don't get paid, <laughs> but I still do research and I, but I don't mentor students or I don't teach at the university anymore. But I love research, but it's so hard to get a job as a researcher in academia, and the pay is really low. <laughs> so I tell people, you know, unless you absolutely love it, you know, I don't highly recommend going into um, the, the research side of academia because it's competitive, it's really hard to get a job, it's very low paid. Um, the rewards often aren't, you know, that great. <laughs> Uh, whereas having, see, I'm lucky because and we'll get to this, but I managed to, even though I'm a classic researcher, I wasn't trained as a counseling psychologist, I actually went into a field where what I do is very similar to counseling psychology. And I found that so much more satisfying. If I had just had my research, I don't think I would have been happy with my career. Yeah. And you brought up uh, something that I was going to bring up a little bit later on, but the timing is perfect right now. I'm sharing the screen. I went to Google Scholar and you're still doing research. So here's one that uh, just came out in this year, self-compassion yeah. theory, method, research, and intervention. And then you can see the other ones as well. And you're still, uh, you have that affiliate with uh, the the university or UT Austin as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm still officially an associate professor. Again, modified status. I'm not paid, right, but I right. have the title. So I can, right. I, I have two more publications coming out this year. So I still um, do research, but it's more wrapping up um, other data sets that I already collected before I left as opposed to necessarily embarking on new research projects. Right, right. So. The other thing that I wanted to highlight is I wanted to uh, give you a moment to tell us a little bit about your story. And, you know, I, I read more about your story and how you got interested in, um, you know, your field, you created a niche for yourself is, is what I'm kind of summarizing for you is that, yeah. hey, you you uncovered this idea and this construct of self compassion that really hadn't been studied. And so during your doctoral uh, graduate career, you focused on that and and created, uh, like I said, uh, one construct right away. And then I think you developed a shortened version or a larger, a longer version. There are two versions out there that I was able to uncover. But tell us a little bit of, uh, of how you came to finding out, hey, I should really research self-compassion uh, empirically. 
Yeah, so it didn't actually happen in my in my graduate studies. I was studying moral development. Okay. And then while I was studying moral development at, at UC Berkeley, um, I actually started learning mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was taking a mindfulness meditation course, it was taught in the tradition of a teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a, a Buddhist, a Zen teacher who talked a lot about self-compassion. So I was practicing self-compassion in my personal life, which really had nothing to do with what I was studying, right? The moral development. But because of that interest in Buddhism and and self-compassion and how we relate to ourselves, then I decided I I wanted to switch from moral development to self-concept development. Mm -hmm. So that's why I did actually two years of postdoctoral study with a woman named Susan Harder, who was, a, who was one of the leaders in the field of self-concept development. And she just happened to have a postdoctoral position open, which I got was amazing. Um, and I started uh, learning about self-esteem and some of the problems with self-esteem and psychology. People were discovering that, you know, often it's contingent on success or the way we look or people liking us. And, it, you know, it's comparative. It's not okay to be average. We have to be above average to have self-esteem. Bullying, for instance, starts as, as little kids try to get their sense of self-esteem. So there was a real kind of backlash in the field of the psychology against self-esteem, not having it, but how you get it. And so it was what, when I was studying with Susan Harder, actually, and I was practicing in my personal life self-compassion, that I kind of got the idea, well, self-compassion is a perfect alternative to self-esteem because it's a way of relating to yourself with kind of in a sense of unconditional worth. I'm flawed, I'm imperfect, I may be average, I may make mistakes, but it's okay because I can have compassion for myself as a human being doing the best I can. And it was, I, I realized that the sense of self-worth was much more stable. So then after doing my postdoc, um, this position opened up at University of Texas at Austin and their human development program. Mm-hmm which I was qualified for because I had studied in developmental psychology, well, human development. And it was also in the, in the, in the field of education. It was in the department of educational psychology. So anyway, I was qualified for the position with my developmental psychology training. And I got to UT Austin. And, and at first I was kind of continuing the work I had done with Susan Harder about, you know, self-concept and we looked at relationship interactions, other things like that. And I had the idea that I wanted to study self-compassion, but no one had done it before. And so actually a mentor at UT Austin, a man named Guy Manister, I said, listen, I want to study this. No one's looked at it. It's a little woo-woo because it comes from Buddhist psychology, or in other words, it may be perceived as woo-woo. Why is compassion woo-woo? But nonetheless, it was, you know, it wasn't like a hard thing. And I said, well, should I wait till I get tenure? to study this, you know, because it's a little, a little risky. And he said, Kristen, if this is your passion, study it. I guarantee you, you'll probably do better research and you'll be more likely to get tenure if you follow your passion. And he was right. So I, so I just decided, but, but Susan Harder had done a lot of work creating scales. She's got like 10 different scales, self-concept development scales. And I thought, well, Susan can create a scale. I can create a scale. <laughs> so I decided to, um, I had two papers in 2003, um, one defining what self-compassion is, which I kind of came up with my own theoretical definition of it. And then how to, and I created a measure that um, followed my theoretical model of what self-compassion was. 
and you mentioned thank you for the summary i love that summary and uh while you were talking i believe susan harder uh was the opportunity that you had for your postdoctoral fellowship in the department of developmental psychology at the university of denver that's right exactly yeah and then and then after that you you uh, ended up, as you just mentioned, UT Austin in the Department yes. of Educational Psychology, first as an assistant professor, and then eventually as an associate professor. Right, about 10 years an associate, yeah. Definitely. And I, I love the advice that he gave you. If it's your passion, you'll probably do better and you'll actually uh, um, get tenure probably because you are putting a lot into it. And and yeah. instead of just going through the motions, oh, I got to get some more research done. And for the audience, they may not recognize the difference between a research one, two, and three institution and the expectations yes. of those uh, programs. Very high expectations at a research one that you publish pro- on average two publications a year in mm-hmm. peer-reviewed journals. So it's... Yes stressful yeah <laughs> it is it is but but now you're focusing more on self-compassion and you actually have um as i mentioned in the introduction you co-founded the center for mindful self-compassion you have and i'm going to go ahead and share my screen give me a second you have a wonderful website out here that uh has uh it's selfcompassion.org i should say self-compassion.org and what's nice about the website is you have a lot of information on here, but you have a lot of events and workshops that people can actually uh, go to. And and here is Chris Germer, who co-founded um, uh, CMSC with you. Uh-huh. But I love the fact that you have all of this information here and uh, people can- And I have uh, research as well. If any if any graduate students or, or students are looking, if you go, if you, if you click up the, the research tab, I have like- probably over a thousand PDFs, research publications organized by category for mm-hmm. research. Go, go down one. Well, there's my instruments. Okay. If you go down one to research publications, yeah. See, so, sorted by area of study. So I have, so actually here's the thing, because I basically founded the field of self-compassion research, there are now mm-hmm. over 5,000 dissertations and published studies on self-compassion. So I kind of felt that it was up to me to try to shepherd the field. Mm-hmm. So um, what I did, you can see, is I created a database on my website where people could actually find out what has been done. They can click on it, get the actual PDF of the article. And I think that really helped research because people um, you know, were able to see what's been done. And I made it really easy for people to do research on self-compassion. Um, and I, I think- love I was just going to say, I love the fact that you have different ways for searching for it, you know? Yeah, and I can tell you, it's a big deal. I update it twice a year, but now about five new studies come out every day, three to Mm -hmm. five. So I I may have to give it up at some point because it's just getting beyond. I have a a graduate student do it, but it's a huge project. Um, But yeah, so that's, and then also really, I make really freely available all my, uh, um, research instruments, including the, the translations of it, mm-hmm. so that people can, uh, again, to facilitate research. So that's been my goal is to facilitate other people doing research on self-compassion, as well as, um, so what happened in terms of why, 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 right now I'm actually mainly focused on teaching self-compassion. In mm-hmm. 2008, I met Chris Germer, and he said, 
Kristen, I love your research on self-compassion, but it's not enough because self-compassion is a practice. It's a way of relating to yourself in a healthy, supportive manner. You need to figure out how to teach people to be more self-compassionate. Mm-hmm. And I said, I've never, I've never taught a workshop. What are you talking about? And Chris Germer, on the other hand, had been teaching mindfulness to psychotherapists for years. And we decided to team up, team up and figure out a, a training protocol to train people in self-compassion. And that's, um, that's really what uh, I'm mainly focused on now. And so we started the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion to train teachers, to train our protocol. And now we do a lot of direct training. So it's really exploded. And now this is primarily what I do, which is also partly why I took early retirement. And once I turned 55, I could still get healthcare. So I took early retirement from UT Austin so I could focus really full-time on teaching and writing. I've written like four books now. Yeah, four books. So, yeah. That's a good summary. And I should uh, let the audience know that CMSC, I believe you and Chris Germer started this uh, back in 2012, actually. Uh, So it's been around for a while, but I love the fact that there are so many resources out here and being able to uh, find a teacher or a course, you can search and actually go in and, and find all of these different uh, um, uh, courses that you could enroll and, and take. So yeah. uh, the resources tab, I loved as well, because depending on if you're learning, training, practicing or teaching, you can go into here and find all of the resources that uh, you'd like as well. So yeah, and interestingly, us- all of my graduate students, I gave them one of the benefits I gave them was training as a mindful self-compassion teacher. Mm-hmm. And they all found it was actually led to careers. None of them actually have ended up in a research university, but they're all doing things with self-compassion. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, so a few of them are teaching, but either like teaching self-compassion, one's doing it for a hospital um, one has developed a, um, the, her, her whole kind of niche of teaching self-compassion to athletes. Uh, one is teaching mindfulness and self-compassion at, at the university level, actually took over my courses, <laughs> one of my students, but is also teaching self-compassion in other areas. So it's really, it's really a, I've been very fortunate, the ability to integrate and combine research <clears throat> with applied work of really helping people, which is actually what I enjoy the most, you know, after a while, the research gets a little old. I mean, there's 5,000 studies. We don't really, we know it works. It's, I mean, at this point, it's kind of the research is, it's marginally interesting, but it's, we aren't really going to find out anything new. As one of, one of my um, friends, Mark, Mark Leary, said, you know, the research is just getting boring. At this point, it all shows it works. Let's move on. Let's move on to something else, which is basically how do we help people learn to be more self-compassionate? Well, speaking of moving on, I wanted to highlight your uh, book. You have multiple books out there, but uh, the screen should be loading here in a second. And the book that I'm referring to is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness and Speak Up, uh, Claim Their Power and Thrive. So I kind of ruined that. Let me do that again. Fierce fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive. There you go. That's a little better for you. So tell us a little bit about the, the story behind uh, developing the concept for this book and, and who obviously yeah. who the target audience is are, are the women out there, but could I read it and take something out of it as well? You absolutely could read it and take something out of it. Um, 
So my first book, Self-Compassion, is actually still my bestseller. And I've got a workbook. Yeah, so that one. And then if you look below, Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, those two are the biggest sellers because they're basically how to how to be self-compassionate to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but really about, hmm, about four years ago, um, I started getting really interested in how gender role socialization impacted the expression of self-compassion, right? And just to be clear, I'm not talking about biological sex and I'm not, I'm not talking about gender identity, whether you're trans, non-binary, cisgendered, but gender role socialization, how people are raised to be boys and girls to turn into men and women. And uh, there's a few things that I saw, first of all, in the research, um, even though compassion is part of the traditional female gender role, Women have slightly less self-compassion than men because they feel less entitled to get their needs met. And the gender role socialization is so much to meet. Have compassion for others, give to others. People like you if you self-sacrifice, but you know, don't get too uppity or meet your own needs, right? So there's that difference. Uh, and then I started being interested in these two different sides of self-compassion. So what I like to call the tender and the fierce. The tender side of self-compassion is about acceptance, acceptance of ourselves as flawed individuals doing the best we can, acceptance of our emotions. It's here, it's painful, can we turn toward it and be with it? But compassion, which is defined also as the alleviate, concern with the alleviation of suffering, also requires action, right? We need to uh, take action to fight against unjust injustice or to change behaviors, our own or those of others that are harmful in some way. And so if you think of these two sides of self-compassion, the fierce and the tender, what you also see is gender role socialization allows um, women or girls to be tender, but we can't be too fierce. I mean, think Hillary Clinton, or she's too ambitious, or, you know, an angry woman. People are less likely to believe an angry woman. They think an angry woman is crazy, but they're more likely to believe an angry man. They think an angry man is passionate. Because men, on the other hand, are socialized to be fierce, but not tender. You know, and, and by the way, everyone's harmed by this because we need to be both fierce and tender to be complete. It's like yin and yang. Um, men are harmed because they aren't allowed to be so in touch with their emotions. They aren't allowed to be sensitive. And that actually reduces their emotional intelligence. It reduces their ability to cope with a lot of stress they feel because they aren't given the tools of emotional sensitivity and acceptance. It's, it's not manly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, women, on the other hand, and I think, and this is also a link to power <laughs> because the patriarchy wanted, wanted women to kind of just comply and to go along with the program and not be too uppity, not to rock the boat. They weren't allowed to speak up or, or to get angry or to really advocate for their own needs. Um, and so the, the only reason I wrote the book for women it's not because both need it, but it was just too much to talk about how socialization differs for people raised as men versus women, because they're totally different. You know, for, for men, it's all the problems of not being able to be tender. With women, it's all the problems of not being able to be fierce. So having said that, I have had a lot of male friends and also including some um, like uh, uh, non-binary friends. It's really interesting. If you aren't cisgendered, then you really see how the gender role socialization impacts who you think, you know, who people think you're supposed to be. So everyone can get something out of it, but it's it's really written for women. Just Also, another thing is it arose out of the Me, Me Too movement. I actually had an, my own 
brush with it that someone who was who's kind of the mini Harvey Weinstein and seeing a lot of the women struggle with getting angry and just not, you know, kind of letting it go. And it was partly to, to talk about how women, if we claim our fierceness, our mama bear energy, we can speak up, you know, yeah, people may not like us as much. So what? I have self-compassion. I like myself, you know, so that's partly what it was inspired by. You might say it's feminism meets self-help. <laughs> Well, there you go. A nice summary. Yeah. Are you considering or has the thought crossed your mind to uh, come out with another book called Tender Self-Compassion, How Men Can Embrace Their Tenderness and Not Be Ashamed? Yeah, yeah. well, so I think Chris Germer would be the right person to write that book or someone else because I haven't, you know, I wasn't raised as a man. So I don't have, mm -hmm. that, you know, I tell a lot of personal stories in all my books. So I think I would, wouldn't it be authentic to me, but I hope someone does write that book because it needs to be done. Yes, yeah. I agree. Um, I was looking at some of your YouTube videos and I love some of the videos out there and you have quite a, quite a few out there, even recently, you know, some people do YouTube for a while and then they kind of shy away from it. Not you, you're consistently putting up new videos. In fact, you have mm -hmm. one that's actually scheduled to come out today uh, called Discover the Power of Self-Compassion with Kristen Neff and Chris Germer. Uh, scheduled for today at 12 p.m. And then you had some other ones here that are recent uh, as well. Yeah. So tell well, us I, how, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, so I do a newsletter every month um, and often I put out a little short video with that. And I, I do a lot of media interviews. So I have an assistant who's my social media guru who posts all of this stuff. So yeah, stuff is always coming out. Um, videos, interviews, podcasts, um, it all ends up on YouTube. I'm pretty active in the media because <clears throat> what happened is self-compassion really has become a movement. It's kind of followed in the footsteps of the mindfulness movement. Most people who are interested in mindfulness realize that we also need self-compassion. You know, the, we need both the heart and the awareness, both the two wings of a bird, so to speak. Uh, and so as this movement evolve, I, I kind of became the spokesperson, you might say, for the movement. I, I have a TED talk where I joke that I'm a self-compassion evangelist, you know, kind of my goal is to spread the good word that there is a different way to relate to yourself that actually will make a dramatic difference in your ability to cope with difficulty and your happiness and well-being. And so because of that, I, I do a lot of media interviews. And I really see that at this point, you know, again, I'm still doing a, so some research right now. I'm actually my last thing I'm going to publish is I, I just published a review article, which is huge in, in the Android reviews of psychology, which you probably know is the highest impact psychology journal, but I'm going to revise the self-compassion scale. I've got all the data sets. So I'm going to write that up, but then I'm pretty much just going to focus on the teaching and the writing books because other people can do the research at this point. It's, you know, my, and it, by the way, it's just kind of happenstance. People say, I love your work. And I take it as a compliment, but what they really love is self-compassion. Mm -hmm. I'm the messenger, the, a lot of messengers, but it's the message that sells itself. Self-compassion works. It transforms lives. It's not like an abstract theoretical idea. It's something you can actually do. It's a practice. Um, and I think that's why it's it's so popular because you can try it out. Anyone can just try it out and see immediately for themselves how it changes the way you relate to difficulty. Well, especially in today's <laughs> world, you know, I always talk to 
you know, the older generation usually thinks, oh, it's changed so much for you young folk and, you know, all that stuff. And it, it does generationally. That's why we have these categories that kind of uh, summarize or, or describe what people are going through today versus 10, 20, 30 years ago. And there is a lot of pressure, especially with, the, you know, while you were talking, I was sharing some of your uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, and, and we'll put that up when we go live as well. But there are more and more people when I was growing up, we didn't really focus on social media, we we actually focused yeah. on interpersonal, you know, yeah. in person uh, interactions. And now that you're changing that, I'm probably rehashing the same old record, but uh, it, it's still true today that there, it creates more self doubt, and, yeah. it, and it impacts your self esteem, whether or not you're male, female, whatever gender uh, role you, you uh, follow it, it impacts you in today's society. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And our adolescents are really, really hurting as a result. Um, so we do have a self-compassion program for teens that um, is a really good program, a lot of empirical support for. It hasn't, we haven't found the way, we're still working on it to get it out there to as many teens as possible. But um, adolescents really need self-compassion because it's just the pressures of having to live up and all the objective measures now you can have to really judge yourself whether or not you're good or bad or popular or not popular. They're just, it's, it's really painful. Yeah. I wanted to share the screen for the CMSC one more time because okay. I, I liked just hovering your mouse over the offerings. And here are all the offerings that you can search uh, for and, and kind of look at to find out what really piques your interest. And um, you just yeah. mentioned some other ones that you're going to be developing and adding to the offerings as well. So yeah. I, I applaud you for, for doing this. It's, it's the application of your passion that you're actually right. following right now. So yeah, ex exactly. And by the way, it's not just me. I mean, it's not just me and Chris Germer. There's a whole community of teachers. There's um, thousands of mindful self-compassion teachers around the world. Mm -hmm. um, some of them have created these, um, really great adaptations. Um, by the way, I just created an eight-week fierce self-compassion course that's being taught at the center. So people who want to go more deeply into um, how to develop that skill. Now, mainly I teach short workshops. I don't have the time to teach an in-depth eight-week course, but there's a lot of people um, who are, and we teach a lot of those directly through the center online. Well, you were actually uh, reading my mind because uh, that was one of the things I was going to bring up next is that you do have that eight-week course. And for those of you who want to visit the website, it's actually a fierce self-compassion live online, online eight-week course. And it is starting actually pretty soon, March 6th to uh, April 27th, 2023, 4 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Pacific just, time. Just to say you do need you need to have some self-compassion training before taking that okay. course. Either there's some requirements just because it's slightly advanced. You kind of need to know self-compassion before you dive into the fear side, things like drawing boundaries or dealing with anger. Okay. Um, but if you want self-compassion training, that's I'm also doing a, a, a core skills program, which is like the basic skills with Inside LA in April. You can find everything I'm doing on. I, I have, there's a lot of ways to find out what's up with me. Just, just <laughs> The nice thing is if you just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. And that's because I got it early. So all the algorithms lead to me. So. Oh, that's good. 
So, yeah. you know, Dr. Neff, when you reflect on your academic and professional journey thus far, and what you're doing outside of academics, and, and especially following your compassion in the application process here, yeah. what really stands out the most or surprises you the most? Kind of think back, when you were in grad school, did you ever think that you'd lead down this road uh, to this uh, end result? I had no idea. I could, couldn't have possibly imagined that um, this would happen, that, you know, be in the position. I mean, it's such a such a privilege. I'm so blessed to have had, to, I happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right experience to launch this field of study. Um, and it really, you know, self, again, it's not me, it's self-compassion. Self-compassion transforms lives. So it's been such a privilege to be able to, you know, and the, the empirical research was important. You know, theoretically, I maybe maybe I wasn't a researcher. I could have just started teaching it, but it wouldn't have been taken so seriously. It's mm -hmm. like mindfulness. Mindfulness wouldn't have been taken so seriously if there wasn't the research to back it up. And the same with self-compassion. It wouldn't have been taken so seriously if, it, if there wasn't those 5,000 studies backing up its efficacy. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's mind-blowing, really. I'm just so blessed. Really, I am. So what do you love most about your job? Well, so um, what I still love most is funny. I have given, gosh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of talks on self-compassion. I never get bored of it. Mm -hmm. I love, again, I am kind of like an evangelist. I love spreading the word. I love telling people that they have this resource available to them that's actually not very difficult to just treat themselves with the compassion they already know how to show to their good friends or their loved ones. I just love being able to share this idea with others. Um, you know, and, and the books and the courses, that's all really fun. And the research is fun. But the main thing I love is, yeah, spreading the word about self-compassion and seeing how sometimes even just hearing it can make a shift. And that's amazing. That's amazing. So yeah. looking toward the future, um, what other things do you have uh, planned for yourself? Any other goals that you have for the future? Uh, well, I probably, I probably have at least one more book in me. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. Um, I think one thing that's going to happen as I, since I'm not, you know, teaching at the university anymore, I'm still doing some research, but as, as I move kind of farther away from academia, I think that will free me in a way to be able to say things that maybe aren't directly empirically supported, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So maybe um, bringing in more spiritual aspects of self-compassion because it's a psychological mindset, but there is also a way in which it's a spiritual mindset. It's about love and, and connection and realizing that maybe we aren't as separate as we think we are, as our egos think we are. And I suspect I'll start moving more into that direction as I move on in my career. So, so to be determined. Yes, yeah. definitely. We'll definitely can, can continue following you as well. Um, one other thing crossed my mind and one other thought crossed my mind, I should say, is for those students who are interested in psychology, but they're not yeah. necessarily, you know, gung-ho about staying in the academic world or academia, yeah. what kind of advice do you have for them? Um, you know, sure, follow your passion is is one thing. Anything else yeah. that you could offer? Yeah, well, so the, the thing I love about psychology and the thing I love about what I do is the ability to help people, the ability to change lives. Ironically, you're not going to change as many lives if you're a researcher. 
I mean, I was kind of fortunate in that my research happened to be in a niche that, you know, and sometimes you do find applied applications of the research that makes a big difference. But realistically, you're more likely to be able to change lives if you are a counselor or if you are a social worker or if you're a teacher, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I think, you know, if that really is your passion, helping people, changing lives, exploring how the mind works. The other big, great thing about psychology is you always have to start with yourself before you can teach others about it or teach others about it. You have to explore your own mind. So there's a way in which what you do is also directly helping yourself. And there's that interconnection between what's going on internally and what's going on externally in your work. Um, it's, it's really uh, a beautiful field of, field of work for that reason, right? Because you never stop learning about yourself at the same time that you're teaching and helping others. So, um, and it's such yeah. a broad, but remember I tell, I tell most of my graduate students, I don't highly recommend going into the field of research for most people. It's hard. It doesn't pay well. It's stressful. And most people aren't doing work that directly touches others. There are exceptions. I, want, mm -hmm. I don't want to dissuade you if that's your passion. It worked out great for me, but really, um, having a PsyD or a master's and going into social work or um, helping becoming a counselor. It's really such an amazing way to, to change lives for the better, including your own. And it's such rewarding and it's so, so broad, the field of psychology so and, and outside of the academic world, uh, people don't even consider what you could do out there. And, and just like you, you found your niche. And yeah. a lot of people, others uh, that I've had on the show found their niche as well. You know, yeah. sports psychology, you could, yes. you know, that's another one that is relatively new in the field. And so um, yeah. I, I encourage people just to do their research and then follow your passion as well. At yeah. the end of most of our uh, um, podcasts, we usually ask some fun questions, uh, Dr. Neff. So I'm going to ask you a, a few of them. One of them is the first one is most challenging. And think about this for a second. Tell us something unique about yourself. Uh, okay. So I was in a, a documentary called The Horse Boy. Uh, it's kind of unusual for an academic where we actually made a film about um, our son who is autistic, where we took him to Mongolia and rode from shaman to shaman to get healing for his autism. Wow. You can find that on, you can buy it on, I think, I think it's on Apple TV right now. It's called The Horse Boy. So that's kind of different. <laughs> that is unique. That is unique. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, tell us your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why. Okay, so lately, um, I'm very interested in non-duality. And it's a, it's a really abstract term, which basically means the understanding that um, although normally we think in terms of subject and object as separate, there's me and then there's the world. It's really an understanding of um, at some level, it's all interconnected. So it's, you can use, it's not really one and it's not really two, which is why they call it non-dual. It's not like everything's the same. Things are different and changing. There's a multiplicity of events. But at some level, if you go to the core of being, that beingness is one. And so I've been very interested in the teachings of a teacher called Rupert Spira, who's a non-dual teacher. 
I suspect that this understanding is going to um, at some point start informing my self-compassion work. I'm not quite there yet, but yeah, so that's what I've been focusing on lately. That's interesting. That's interesting. Any other advice uh, that you have for those who are the least bit interested in the field of psychology? Um, actually, I think anyone who's interested in psychology would probably do well by exploring self-compassion. Because what self-compassion does is it allows you to turn inward in a safe way, in a supportive way. And if you're interested in how the mind works, you're going you're gonna to bump into suffering, right? Because there's, a, you know, it's not all suffering, but there's a lot of difficulties in terms of how we uh, relate to the world. And so I would probably think my, my website may actually be a good place to start, do a couple of the practices and just see, are you interested in this inward journey? I mean, there's a lot of places you can start, but here, here, maybe another way of putting it, instead of doing self-compassion, start with yourself. Don't, don't go into psychology as like this, like it's not like math or physics. It's not outside of yourself. It's inside of yourself. So start exploring your own mind, make it a personal journey. And that will actually lead you to where you want to go in your field of study. I like it. I like it. A final question, fun question. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Um... Uh, time and the money to complete one project. Well, I would love to have um, self-compassion taught in all high schools, in all professional training programs. <laughs> I would, if I had the time and the money and the, the willingness of the environment, I would love to really have this be everywhere. It's part of when you learn, when, you know, when you learn psychology, when you learn how to be a doctor, when you learn how to do whatever that you understand how to deal with the difficulties of whatever endeavor you're gonna um, undertake. And self-compassion is the way we deal with difficulty and struggle. So that'd be my ideal dream goal, but. <laughs> get, it in the, get it in the hands of everyone you know? so they can learn more about so themselves can, and, and start that journey. And so. they, can, they can help, they can, it's really it helps you cope with difficult emotions, difficult circumstances. It helps you deal is how you're with your suffering and suffering is what derails us. And so when we know how to deal with it in a healthy way, then so much more becomes possible. So much more. I like that. Kristen, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? No, I think that was pretty thorough. So. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I really enjoyed learning more about your journey. I'm going to look at the website a little bit more. We'll put everything on uh, when we go live as well. Thanks Great. again for being on our podcast. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.